0: And I thought there was one more song, but we're good. Yeah. Well, we, have, we have had the scripture reading this morning, but I do encourage you to take your Bibles. If you have your Bible with you or if you have some uh, fashion of it in uh, digital form on a phone or a tablet. Uh, if you're carrying around your desktop this morning, that would be weird. But uh, who knows? Uh, so anyway, God's word is alive and active and Sharper than any two-edged sword, and we, we come to it weekly. <clears throat> we are people who believe in the exposition of Scripture. That God, God speaks to us through His Word, and um, He has spoken, and He will, he will continue to speak uh, through the bread of heaven, through the, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I would invite you to pray with me, if you would, as we seek God's grace and guidance and him to enlighten our hearts to understand his word. Bread of heaven, feed us this morning with truth, with life-giving sustenance. Feed us with the truth of who your son is. Feed us that we would live evermore by belief in him. I thank you, Lord God, for your mercy to us, and I pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would be working in this room and in the hearts of everyone who is viewing and listening to understand the necessity of salvation, the necessity of believing in Christ, the humility, the repentance that is necessary that brings us to life eternal. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And, Father, we thank you for drawing us by your grace to understand you and to believe in your Son for eternity. Would you teach us now, for we pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. When you came in this morning, you received a, a cup. I'd like you to take that out. We're not going to partake of it yet, but uh, I want you to hold it in your hands, um, because it is it is communion. It is uh, the Lord's Supper, and it represents something. It is a, a memorial meal, <clears throat> memorial meaning that we remember what Jesus has done for us. But it's it's symbolic. It is. Is not something that imparts grace to us. The, the wafer itself um, is symbolic, almost symbolic of bread. That, believe me, it is, it is edible because um, I know it has the, the taste and the texture of styrofoam. <laughs> but it really is bread. And it is the symbolism that is important to us because it symbolizes to us that Jesus came in the flesh He took on human flesh, and and by doing so, he makes us his body. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we recognize there is one bread but many members. And as we saw last week, Christ purchases his bride. And we will all be together, and we will be one, raised up with him. But how do we get into that body? How do we become part of his bride? And that's the the mystery of salvation, for indeed it is mystery um, that Christ would save any of us and forgive any of us. And the bread and the cup are a reminder of what he has done. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And what does that mean when we say give us this day our daily bread? Does it mean that every day God is going to give us a literal loaf of bread. It it means that we are depending upon God to give us bread stands for food. Bread bread itself in the Lord's Prayer is is a symbol, a figure of speech for all of food and all of sustenance. And and it is bread that keeps us going and gives us life and, and, and keeps us going until he comes back. It is food that does that for us. And the bread of heaven is symbolic of a different kind of bread, a bread that we have to partake of, and then it becomes part of us, and we become part of him. And it gives us life eternal. He gives us life eternal as we partake of this bread. Jesus always spoke in figures of speech and symbolically and in parables. And and uh, at the end of uh, this book, he's going to say to his disciples, uh, That he, no longer do I speak to you in figurative language, but now I speak plainly to you. In the meantime, he uses all sorts of figurative language. He uses parables, not so much in in John's gospel, but he uses figures of speech, these symbolisms that that people scratch their head and go, what are you talking about? I don't get what you mean. The point is, those who have ears to hear will understand this symbolism They will understand the symbolism of the bread and understand the symbolism of the cup. But we have to understand what Jesus is saying. This is the first of the seven I am statements. We've talked about that. In John's gospel, he records these seven statements of Jesus Christ. And the, the very first one is I am the bread of life. And then I am the light of the world. And then he says, I am the door. Then he says, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, I am the true vine. All of these I am statements all point to a, a different kind of a de- a depth of ministry of Jesus Christ. That he has is, he is many things at once to us. And they're mostly symbolic. He's a vine? What do you mean he's vine? He's, he's bread. What do you mean he's bread? He's a shepherd. He's not a shepherd. He was a carpenter. What are you talking about? Jesus speaks in these symbolisms to to teach us a deeper spiritual truth. And the deeper spiritual truth of the bread of life is that he is the not just physical sustenance, but spiritual bread, food for eternity. And we have to partake of that. We have to eat his body. What? What? It's all symbolic, and again, those who have ears to hear will hear, and, and what Jesus is going to do is he's going to continue to teach what it means that he is the bread of life, and what it means to believe in him. The bread of life discourse is the longest, um, it is very, very long, it begins really back when he, he fed the 5,000, and then the, the people come back after he talks to the uh, to the disciples out on the middle of the ocean, and they come back and 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 uh, they start talking about the bread of life after he had just given them bread from heaven, so to speak. And they don't understand what is this bread of heaven. And he keeps talking about it. Even the next couple of weeks, we're going to con- see that he he continues this extended discussion of the bread of life. The rest of these <clears throat> I am statements are very very short. When he says, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the great shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, most of them are very, very brief. But this one is long. And it's the first one because he wants us to understand symbolism and he's speaking with figurative language and he wants us to understand the depth and the breadth of what it means that he is the ultimate satisfaction of our spiritual needs and our physical needs and our emotional needs and everything that we need, our our need of forgiveness, our need of salvation, it is him. And there isn't anything besides him. He is the ultimate. So he is going to continue to teach to us and describe um, the bread of life. And also what it means for us to actually believe in him for this salvation. But first he's going to talk about unbelief. And we're going to see this. Unbelief is a willful rejection of God's provision. We're to believe in him for eternal life and as the bread of life. But unbelief is a willful rejection of God's provision. Verse 41 says... Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him, the Jews. Now, he, he changes uh, audience here a little bit. Remember, he started with the 5,000 or so, really 20,000. They followed him over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he met the disciples right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee during a storm. He talked to the disciples. He gets on the other side. The crowd comes back, and he talks to the crowd about being the bread of life. And now it says he, the Jews start grumbling. Aren't they all Jewish? Yes, but this is a a term that John uses in his gospel to mean the loyal opposition. These are the religious leaders who oppose him. And there isn't anything he he can do to satisfy them. He's never going to say or do anything that is going to please him. Cancel culture started a long time ago, believe me. And they're going to take issue with everything that he says, and they're going to parse it out, and they're going to take it wrong, and they're going to take it literally, and they're going to misunderstand his figurative language, and they were grumbling about him. These Jewish religious leaders, this all takes place in a synagogue. The grumbling, we've seen this word before, it's a word of low murmurs. People turn their head this way, and they murmur, 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 and and Jesus sees their body language, as you can too. I mean, you know what you see it sometimes even at church or where you work, people kind of, well, let me tell you something. And he sees them, he sees the body language, he sees their grumbling, and he also knows exactly what it is they're they're grumbling about. It is about him. And there's a specific part of his statement that they take issue with. Because he said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And they were saying. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How now does he say, I've come down out of heaven? We know his mom. We know his dad. He's he's a local boy. They're they're in Capernaum. They're up north in Galilee. They know where where Jesus lives. They know where his mom and dad is. And what do you mean he came down out of heaven? Do they understand? No. They're taking things... Wrong. They're taking their own liberty. They're misunderstanding. They they are unbelievers. They misunderstand. They disbelieve. They have not believed in Jesus, even though He has shown them so many things. They disbelieve and they are rejecting the very provision that He's providing. What's the provision that He's providing? Bread from heaven. They're rejecting that provision by their disbelief they missed the point the point isn't his mom and his dad the point isn't the, uh, the city that he's from it, it was the, here. Is the, they missed the point about who gave the manna from heaven, it was not Moses it was God, and so they have also missed the point about the statement coming down from heaven, they just don't simply see that a boy, some, boy from Nazareth could come from heaven, that doesn't make any sense to them off with him Let's reject him out of hand. He came from heaven. To the Jews, in Jewish thinking, heaven is the abode of the place of God. That's where God dwells. They would think of the, the atmosphere where the birds fly and the clouds are. That's the first heaven. The second heaven would be when you go out at night and you see the stars where the sun is and the planets. That's the second heaven. But as Nehemiah says, Lord, you dwell in the heaven of heavens. That's the place where God lives. They would see that as that's where God is in heaven. And how does this boy from Nazareth say, I came down from heaven? And so they're grumbling and they're complaining. Now, the irony is this recall what happened in the wilderness. Children of Israel were hungry. And what did God give to them? Manna from heaven. Manna from heaven. Every day they came out there was manna. Every morning it was there was manna. Every single day God provided manna from heaven. Was it enough? No. Should have been. From heaven he was providing Sustenance. He was providing life. He was providing food. And the manna was a symbol of of life-giving food that God was their their supply. God was their restorer. God was the one who was keeping them going, gave them very life itself. And every day they came out and said, what is it? Because that's what manna means. That's what the word manna means, Hebrew. What is it? And every day they came out and they took it and they boiled it and they chopped it up and they toasted it and they made different things with it and then pretty soon they said we want some meat we need meat and, and, and they grumbled against Moses and they grumbled against Moses many times and when they grumbled against Moses what did Moses say to them you're not grumbling against me you're grumbling against God because Moses didn't provide the manna the Lord provided the manna and they grumbled against the Lord they saw the daily faithfulness of God graciously providing manna from heaven, but they didn't see it. They didn't see it as God's grace. They didn't see it as God's provision. It just became old and stale and whatever. We need something else. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to my sin. In the same way, these Jews, they saw the miracle of Jesus with the 5,000 out of a few fish and loaves from heaven, if you will, fed them, multiplied all this food, graciously provided it, and Jesus said, well, I am the bread, and they don't see it. Just like they missed it in the wilderness, so do these Jews miss it. And they do not recognize right before their very eyes the bread of heaven. Right before their very eyes. God in the flesh. God come from heaven in his son. In Jesus Christ. And all they can do is complain and grumble. We are warned. First Corinthians 10.9 says. Nor let us try the Lord. As some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. Same word. As some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Because you remember what happened when. Uh, God finally gave them a quail and they ate it and there was a, a plague that went through because it became rotten in their mouths. Because they didn't graciously accept and believe in God. And he says, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that we would learn how not to grumble, that we would learn to graciously accept God's provision because unbelief is a willful rejection of what God has provided. So here are two lessons. First is this. The answer to grumbling is don't. Because what did Jesus say? Stop. Don't. Don't grumble. That's the answer. Don't grumble. The answer to grumbling is don't. We're good at this. Oh, we're good. Are we good at grumbling and complaining? Yeah, we are so good at this. We are experts at grumbling, and we can find something to complain about of anything, right? Go to a nice restaurant, man, there's a little speck of dust over here, and the spot of my glass. No matter what it is, we can always find something to grumble and complain. Some of you are better at it than others. I know that. Some of you are experts, really, really good professionals, as it were. They were not satisfied, and we are never satisfied as well. We fail to see God's gracious provision every single day. Every morning we get up and there's manna. Not literally, but figuratively. Every morning we give up. His blessings are new. His grace is new. His, his kindness is new to us. Every single morning, but it's raining. It's too hot. It's too cold. But he's there, and his grace is sufficient for us. But unbelief is a willful rejection of God's provision. And we can do that too. Not just unbelievers, but Christians can do that too. We can get into this habit of willfully rejecting all of the wonderful things that God has given to us, and we grumble and complain, and we shouldn't. The answer is don't. There's another answer, though. And the answer to grumbling is gratitude. Gratitude. Being grateful, being thankful. I have a, a Thanksgiving this morning. His name is Woodrow. He's my new grandson, born on Friday. Yeah, Woodrow. Yep, we're pretty happy. And that's something, like many things in life, we should be grateful for every single day. We're, we're good at asking. We're good at complaining. We're really bad at thanking God. We are. We need to do better. We're just not good at gratitude. Today, when you leave here, and you get in your car, and you see that beautiful display on the car, and it turns over and it starts up, and you drive on the streets that are paved, and you come into your driveway, and your automatic door opens up, like it does every time. And you go into your house and you sit in the comfort of, maybe you've got air conditioning on your nice couch and you pull stuff out of the refrigerator and you turn on the TV or you pick up your, your phone and you look at all the things that God has given you, even material things, give thanks today. And then count your blessings of your, your spouse and your mom and your dad and your, your brothers and your sisters and your children. Enlist them one by one and thank God for all of those innumerable provisions that He's given to you. And most of all, do not cease to thank Him for your salvation that He graciously allows you to continue to breathe and for your heart to continue to beat. You know why you continue to breathe and your heart continues to beat? He's gracious. He sustains you. It is all of God. And that he has promised you eternal life. That he drew you to himself. That he gave you the gift of salvation. That he forgave your sins. That he put his spirit within you. All of these blessings. And That is the answer to grumbling. Gratitude. And we should be people of grace. Now, this rejection is willful, and we are culpable for it. And those Jews who rejected Jesus in unbelief, they're unbelievers, we're believers, they were unbelievers, they're culpable for their unbelief. But we see in verses 44 through 46 an incredible truth that we must latch on to, and that is this, that salvation is the exclusive work of, of God's grace. It is the sole work of God. It is the unilateral work of God. It is all of grace. Salvation is all of Him. It is none of us. It is His doing. It is not my doing. You did not save yourself. I did not save myself. I had no part in it. God graciously gave to us that gift. Now, what we're going to see are a couple of things. We're going to see Jesus is going to explain his divine origin. And he's going to explain his divine mission. His divine origin is that he is one with the Father. His divine mission was to do the Father's will in completing our salvation. Very, very simple. His divine mission. Uh, origin. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. Re- this is um, uh, the the question. This is the problem. <clears throat> this is the grumbling of the Jews against Jesus. Well, this guy didn't come from heaven. Jesus is going to say, Yeah, I did. Yeah, yes, I did come from heaven. And verse 44 is a is a verse that is used as a proof text for soteriology and for the doctrine of salvation. That's what soteriology is. A big big word meaning the the teaching the doctrine of salvation and often used as, as a uh, as a proof of what what is often called irresistible grace and that is that God draws us inexorably and irresistibly to himself and he pulls us to himself in salvation yes it is a proof text for that and it's and it's a proper one But to fully understand what he's talking about and to fully understand the the depth and the beauty of, of our salvation, we need to understand what Jesus is saying in this particular context. And he's continuing to make the point that, yes, I am from the Father. He says this in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him And I will raise him up on the last day. We saw a couple of weeks ago, last week rather, um, as Chris explained to us, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. God, the Father, gives to the Son us. It's his gift. To the son, us, our redemption, his children. And he says, no one may come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. You see what's right in the middle of that sentence? The father sent me. They're grumbling. He didn't come from heaven. And Jesus says, yeah, I did. I was sent by the father. I came directly from the father. And I had a mission. The mission is to raise you all from the dead. To one day complete this salvation. The father sent the son. The father draws sinners to the son. And Jesus completes that salvation on the last day. By raising us up. He says no one can come to me. That's exclusive. No one can come to me. It doesn't say well most people can't come to me. It is exclusive. There is no person who can come to Jesus on their own. It is impossible. No one can come to me. That little word can is an important word because it means no one has the power, no one has the ability in themselves to come to Jesus. Can't be done. We don't have it in us. We're not wired for it. No one may come. It's stated in the negative right off the bat. Before he said, everyone whom the Father gives, I will raise up on the last day. And then he says, but... No one in and of themselves is able to come to me. You know why we don't have the ability? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. We are depraved, as the theologians say we are lost sinners we could not come to him we if left to ourselves we will always choose what ourselves we are in need of divine enabling and divine guidance to come to him we cannot even do it on our on our own because we are lost we are dead we are sinners we are seeking after our own way we are lost sheep who've gone astray That's why we need a Savior. And what does a Savior do? A Savior rescues people who cannot rescue themselves. And we cannot rescue ourselves, and that's why he rescues us. No one can come to me, and as Jesus is saying, they're, they're coming to me, unless. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Those words are... Are beautiful because we're lost without it. If he says no one can come, but there's hope, unless the Father draws them. They're, they're beautiful words. It, 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 they're on par with those beautiful words in Ephesians 5 that we read this morning. Uh, they're on the screen this morning. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And Paul goes on to talk about how horrible our depravity was. And then he says, but God... Beautiful words. But God who is rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. But God, unless God, you see who works out our salvation, it is God who does this. And left to ourselves again, we will always choose ourselves. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, And then Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the third time that Jesus has said this. Verse 39, verse 40, here in verse 44, then we're going to see in verse 54, does that, you know, when you're studying the Bible and you see something that is repeated over and over and over again, that becomes a theme, and this is a theme, a sub-theme of the bread of life discourse, that Jesus Christ in the flesh will raise us up on the last day. He is the one who does that. That's part of our salvation. That's part of his work of salvation. That's part of our redemption. That's part of him dying on the cross for our sins and him rising from the dead that he might raise us from the dead. That's our hope. That's our hope of salvation that he is going to raise us on the last day. So I want to show you some indispensable links to our salvation that we see in in this passage. Some indispensable links of our our salvation. Number one, we are incapable of coming to God because of our sin. We're incapable. We cannot do it. We're broken. We're lost. We're unable. We are dead spiritually. Second of all, God sent his son to be our savior. That's where Jesus came from. Oh, Jews, he did come from heaven. He did come from the abode of God. He did come from the place of God. And it was by God's grace that he sent him. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his son. Number three, the Father draws us to salvation. We don't draw ourselves, He is the one who draws us to salvation. This also is by his love and his grace. Why must we be drawn? Because we're dead, because we're sinners, because we're lost, because there is none who seeks after God. Some people do seek him. You know why they seek him? Because he's seeking them. It's part of their being drawn. He's making himself known to them. And number four, the son completes our salvation by raising us on the last day. See, this work of God, this wonderful work of grace, <clears throat> salvation is the exclusive work of God's grace in our lives that we don't deserve, but he graciously gives to us in this plan that was hatched, if you will, before the foundation of the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in this. And so we want to look at that. If, he's, if, if we can only come by his drawing, how does this drawing happen? How does this actually work in our lives? How does the Father draw us? Well, he communicates spiritual truth to us. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How does the Father draw us? Number one, through his word. How does the Father, how are we drawn? It is through his word. Jesus says, yeah, yeah I, I came from heaven with a mission to complete salvation that the Father would draw people to me. And how does this happen? Well, it was written in the prophets, the graphe, the writings, and they shall be taught of God. He's, he's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah here that there is a day in the new covenant ministry where, uh, where it is God who teaches people. And he goes on and the rest of this, the quote ends with, and they shall be taught of God. And then Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How do you come to the Father? He has to communicate to you. He initiates communication. Because you can't. Because we're sinners. Because we're lost. It is written in the Prophets. They shall all be taught of, of God. Jeremiah 31:34 is, is one of the verses that he's alluding to here, which says, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. He draws us and through his word he explains these things to us these things to us. But the Father must communicate to us. Look at the words of understanding. It is written. They shall be taught, they shall hear, and they shall learn, and it is all the work of God. God opens our minds to understand these things through his word. That's how we are drawn, because we don't have the ability in ourselves. So it's through his word, but it's also through his spirit. He draws us. The Father draws us through his word, but he draws us through his spirit. How do they? How did the scriptures come? They came by inspiration. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. The, all scripture is God-breathed, and it is a, all the prophets who wrote were speaking the words by the Holy Spirit, and they were speaking about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now listen to this. But a natural man, an unbeliever, a person who does not have the spirit, person who's lost... But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. Read the Jews grumbling. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Doesn't say the people will not, can't. We don't have the ability to understand them. But the Spirit of God is the one who makes those things known to us. There are things we can know that only God will make known to us. That's the only way we can learn them, that he has to, by his Spirit, open up his Word, that we can understand what he's saying. And that's the only way that we can know some of these things. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but by his Holy Spirit, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit our hearts were dead, our minds were dark, our wills were deadened. And he enlivens us. And he speaks to us and he teaches us by his word and by his spirit. And in so doing, he is drawing us. But we don't have the the spiritual equipment to understand. I was explaining this to our, our sermon prep time the other day. One of the Shows that we like to watch on TV is The Last Man Standing. Anybody like that? And anyway, great show. And there was, there was a, an episode where Mandy, who is this very self-centered girl, she gets in trouble and has her, all of her electronics taken away from her. And she's looking downstairs for her phone because she just in withdrawals. She wants to text her friends and she wants to get online. And she finds a typewriter and she goes, oh, a keyboard. I wonder where the monitor is. That's how we are before the Spirit speaks to us. You can't get online and post anything with the typewriter. There's no link. There's no ability. There is a chasm. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We cannot understand. We cannot know. We cannot communicate with God. But he will communicate with us. And it is a good thing that he takes the initiative through his word, through his spirit, and through his son. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the father. You guys haven't seen him, except one who was from God. He said, God sent me. You say I didn't come from heaven. Well, I just said I'm sent from God. And I'm the only one who has seen him, the one who was sent from God I've told you before how important the prologue is in John's gospel because he keeps coming back to these themes that he he laid out in that first chapter. And one of the things that he said in chapter 1 was this, no one has seen God at any time. No one. You cannot see God. Why? You don't have the spiritual equipment. He's beyond you. He's infinite. You're finite. You would disintegrate if you were able to see him in all of his glory. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, the only begotten God, who is in relationship in the bosom of the Father, who is deep in fellowship with the Father. He has explained him. Jesus come in human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, standing right before the Jews and right before the crowd and right before us, He explains to us who the Father is, what the Father is like. That's how we can know the Father because there is is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Moses was imperfect as a mediator. Jesus is the perfect mediator. I don't care what Don Lamont says. Jesus never sinned. Probably read that that he said, arguably, uh, Jesus was not perfect. No, yeah, that's ex- that was the the central historic claim of Jesus Christ is, I am perfect. He is perfect because he is the living God, come in the flesh, and so it is through the Son, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Truly, no one comes to the Father but through him, and the Father draws. So therefore still no one can come to the Father except that they are drawn. And the only avenue for that drawing is to the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the Son of God. And He alone has comprehended and known and perceived the Father. And He is therefore the perfect mediator for us to show us what the Father is like. This is what Godness is. This is what who God is. This is what perfection is. This is what His glory is. We, we, we learn this by the bread of life and by believing in Him. So, some lessons. From beginning to end, salvation is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, Salvation is the work of God. What what is the beginning in verse 44? No one can come. In the end of the verse, I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the whole process of salvation, we're we're dead in our transgressions and sins. No one may come, but God sends his son. And God draws those to the son, and then Christ uh, completes our salvation, and on the last day, he raises us up. From beginning to end, salvation is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there isn't anything that we can do to aid. Second of all, God's drawing us to salvation is the ultimate act of grace. The ultimate act of grace. And we should not look at this in a negative way and say, Well, I don't really understand. You know, I'm supposed to believe. No, we should look at it and, and, and marvel and in glory, in God's grace, in his choice of us, that he would, why would he choose you? Why would he choose me? I don't know. But he has. And it is the ultimate act of grace to take someone who's dead and make them alive, for they can do nothing on their own. So you see that God's sovereign grace and salvation leaves no room for pride Strips us of our pride. We have to humble ourselves. For by grace you have been saved through faith and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So you can't come and say, well, I did my part. No, your part was to believe. But how does that happen? Because he drew, he, he drew you. That's how it happens. I know that this is difficult to understand he says in the very next word, verse if you believe you'll have eternal life but he says you can't believe unless you're drawn how does that make any sense we have to take Jesus at his word and we have to let the scriptures take us where they will and and it's very very simple and very very plain what Jesus says you cannot come unless he draws you but he also says you have to believe can you explain that not really we're babies before Him. We're infants. We're children. But the Scriptures teach this as true, and I think every one of us who have come to Christ, and, and we we really understand it. We understand His 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 providence in our life that He was drawing us. Just, you know, why were you born in this country where the gospel is prevalent? Why were you born into the family that you were born into? How did you get a Bible? Why did you meet Christians who prayed for you and why did they pray for you? Why did someone speak to you about the gospel and tell you about the love of Christ? And yet we want to say, well, I got to do my part. All of that was his part. All of that was his drawing. All, all of that was him. And we, when we look back, we see it was all of God and none of me. When I came to, to Christ in college, I remember there was this, you know, people were talking to me and, and praying and they gave me a Bible and I was, there was this titanic struggle within me and I knew that I needed to believe and I needed to give in to God and I needed to repent of my sin. And it was a, a struggle for weeks and it was, it, was, it was very, very difficult. But when I look back on it, I go, that was God. That wasn't me. I was resisting. That struggle was him pulling me. In fact, that word, uh, unless the father draw me, um, is a word that, that is always used of resistance. Always. Those whom God draws always resist to some level. And I was resisting him. And the struggle was my sin. That's really the bottom line, isn't it? It's I didn't want to give up what I loved. I didn't want to repent. I did not want to serve him. I did not want his grace. I was willfully rejecting his provision right before my face. But he won. Praise God he won. And praise God that I belong to him because he drew me to himself. And I look back on it and I go... Man, I can just see markers in my life, in people and places and situations, and every point along the way, God was sovereignly and in His providence pulling me right along, and I was kicking and screaming the whole way. I only gave in because of His grace. So our unbelief is willful rejection. And we see that salvation is this exclusive soul, unilateral work of God. But we also see in verses 47 through 51 that we have to believe. Belief is a humble acceptance of God's provision. Belief is, is humility. And acceptance means dependence. Acceptance means we give in. Acceptance means we, we agree with him that he's right about our sin. I've been wrong. You're right. I'm sorry. I repent, forgive me. And that means we have to humble ourselves. That we, means we need to say, I'm not really good enough. Yeah, my religiosity is not going to get me there. All, all the great things that I've done for people, it counts for zilch. Nothing. Jesus says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He just said, no one can come to the Father except I draw him. Then he says, whoever believes, just gives an invitation. If anyone believes, they will have eternal life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. He says it again, but very simply here, just talking to these Jews, standing right before them, God in the flesh, they're rejecting him. He said, if you believe, I just told you, you can't come unless the Father draws you. But, but if you believe, and this is what you must believe, that I am the bread of life. I am the sustenance. I am life itself. I haven't seen one of those t-shirts in a long time that say, basketball is life or baseball is life. No, it's not. He is life. He is the bread of life. And he says in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Their limitations to bread till our next meal. And they died because it was just bread. Yeah, miraculously given, but it was just bread. And then he says, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven for this purpose so that one may eat of it and not die. They ate manna in the wilderness. And I think Jesus did this. I think he said, this bread. He said, I am the bread of life. life and this bread is given, has, been, has come down from heaven so that for this purpose that whoever believes and partakes will not die. Moses was an imperfect mediator. Jesus is the perfect mediator. And then he says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He's speaking figuratively, remember? How do you eat this bread? Do you eat this bread? I'm the bread. You've got to eat my flesh. We're going to see that next week, and they're going to, go, going to blow the minds of these people who are listening and many of his disciples because he's saying, you've got to eat my flesh. You've got to eat this bread, and you will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice he says, I am going to give this future tense. He's talking about his death in his resurrection. Yeah, I've come down out of heaven, but I've got a mission, and the mission is to go to the cross. And when I go to the cross, then you will have eternal life because I came to give my life for your life and the life of the world. Not just you Jews, but for the world. The great exchange. I will give my life for, on behalf of, in place of the world, he dies in our place. He dies on our behalf that we might have life. He is the living bread, not flour and water, an inanimate object, object, but he says, I am the living bread, life itself, eternal life. Take your bread and your cup, will you? Take your bread and your cup and take out this representation of bread this facsimile of bread, if you will. Hold it in your hands and open the cup. Jesus is talking about not communion, but he's talking about salvation. And let me ask you this morning, is he drawing you? If he is, you know it. Is he drawing you to faith? And maybe some of our kids even. Is this a moment? Is he drawing you to believe in Jesus? Maybe you just kind of understood it, but now you understand. You know, I heard as a kid that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I didn't understand grace. When someone explained grace to me and God opened my mind and my heart to understand it, it was like, boom, a light went on. Grace! He gives to me what I do not deserve, He gives to me salvation. And maybe he is drawing you this morning, and this is the moment. This is for those who believe. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, be honest about it. Be at least humble enough to say, I really don't believe yet, but I'm on my way. Or maybe partaking of it this morning might be your declaration that this is the moment of my belief, because that's part of the, the... the language as he speaks here is there is a moment in time that you believe. There is a moment in time that we come and we believe, and then we continue to believe and we continue to partake. And as we partake, I want you to look at these three final lessons. These three final lessons. Eating is believing to fulfill the figure of speech. That he was talking about, you must eat my this bread, my body. He's talking about faith. We have to believe in him. So eating is believing, and eating a, eating the, the bread and drinking the cup is a is a symbol of our belief in Christ. We've placed our hope in him in him alone. Second of all, humility is necessary to accept God's provision that is right before us, right before your eyes. We must come in humility. We must come in repentance. We must come recognizing I cannot do this on my own. I need you. And third, salvation is of the Lord, but open to any who believe. I don't completely understand it. I will not until I'm in heaven, nor will you. But is he doing the work of salvation in your heart this morning? And for those of you who are believers, pray with me. Father, we thank you for the bread which represents the body of Jesus given for us, bread down from heaven, living bread, who gave himself on our behalf to die in our place, that we might have eternal sustenance through your word. Through your Spirit, through your Son. And we thank you for this cup, which represents his very life, life itself, life blood poured out for us that we might be born again. And so I pray, Father, that by the moving of your Spirit, you would help those who do not believe to believe at this very moment that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that they would say to you in their hearts, I believe in Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. And Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me.